Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. All right, welcome to Libre Lounge, a show about software and user freedom. I'm Serge. I'm Chris. This time we have a very special guest with us, the president of Software Freedom Conservancy and co-host of the podcast Free as in Freedom, Karen Sandler. Karen, say hi. Hi there. So uh, the thing to know about this podcast is that both Chris and I are heavily inspired by Free as in Freedom, uh, a podcast that Karen and Bradley Kuhn uh, have had going for several years. And Karen is a huge free software advocate and has been for quite a long time, uh, both uh, in her current role as executive director of Software Freedom Conservancy and her past uh, roles in the project. So I thought we would start at the beginning, Karen. What is your background or how did you get started with uh, free software? Yeah, well, for first I have to correct you because I am not president of the Software Freedom Conservancy. I'm executive director. Um, but uh, I am I was involved in the founding of the Software Freedom Conservancy. So um, we'll get to that. But it was, it's actually Bradley Kuhn, who is my co-host on Free is in Freedom, who's the president. Um, so I would be remiss if I didn't just uh, jump in there and uh, and uh, uh, claim my correct title. <laughs> Good call. Um, <laughs> um, so, so you asked me how I got involved with free software, right? Yeah. So I think all of us in free software have a place where we started a, kind of an origin story or a thing that motivated us to, to get involved. So what was that for you? Yeah. You know, I think that probably the very first thing for me was uh, when I was in college, I went to the Cooper Union. Uh, I don't know if uh, either of you have heard of it. It's uh, a very small school in New York City. And it was at the time and will be again someday soon, I hope, uh, uh, free as in charge. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it was the only full scholarship university in the United States when I went. And uh, it had financial troubles, but hopefully it will be uh, free again. They're going to start doing uh, more scholarships even next year. So that's pretty exciting. But when I went there as a young engineering student, uh, my very first class was a programming class. And so I went for the very first day of college and I, I met a friend in the class and she and I went to the computer center together. And when we got to the computer center, because, you know, it being, I won't say how many years ago, but a lot of years ago, almost nobody had their own computers. I was actually one of the few people who had their own computers. I had a um, uh, 286, I believe. Um but yeah, so, and it was like a, a, a laptop, but we didn't call it an, a laptop. I forget what we called it. But, Probably um, a portable? It wasn't a portable. That we, we, I, my father had had one of those portable ones that had the, um, the keyboard that was like, that clicked onto the front and had a big handle and it was like two feet deep and like a foot, a foot high with like a screen that was like, I want to say like six inches by six inches and like orange and black. But yeah, anyway, so I, I went with a friend of mine to get my account in the computer center, which is how we would be doing any of our programming for the class. It was like a, a C and Fortran class, again, showing my age. Um, and um, and so uh, and it was required for all engineering students. And so she and I went to the computer center and we went to go get our account. And when we walked into the computer center, it was 
really, really terrible. Um, there were no women there. It was all men. And the stares that we got when we walked into the computer center were really, really uncomfortable. And then there was one guy in the computer center who actually pulled up some ASCII porn on his screen, which was like so offensive. Um, yeah, that's really offensive. Yeah, it was really, I mean, I had a, and have a pretty thick skin, so I was sort of like, whatever. But the woman I was with, she was really upset and she was like you know what i just i don't need this right now i'm gonna go i'll come back another time and she left and i was like i'm not leaving i'm gonna i'm gonna stay (laughs) so i went um i went into the i don't know why i did this but i went into the head of the computer center's office because i was mad and upset that she had left i thought it was wrong and so i went in there and i said to him you have a problem here you need to do something about this because we just came in for the very first time, and uh, and my friend has already left because it was so gross. And he said, "You're hired." And I was like, "What? You're hired for what?" I, I was like, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Oh, well, we have computer center operators who help us maintain the computer labs and help people who need assistance. And um, obviously, I need to hire you." And I, I was like, well, I, you know, I've done a little bit of programming, but it's like just in basic and I don't really know very much. And he was like, we'll get I'll get my best my best people to help you learn and you'll learn as quickly as possible. And that's what happened. And that's what I did. It was amazing. Um, it was a really, really forward thinking of him. Yeah, it was a great opportunity. And, um, and he's a he's a lovely man. He's still at Capri. Um, uh, Bob Hopkins, he's uh, he he was very focused on and this is the other piece that influenced me in software freedom is he was very influenced on um, tech ethics so uh, he was very involved in a class that they had there were two mandatory classes for all engineering students at the beginning of this the um, freshman year one was the programming class and the other uh, because well i guess the physics was there were were a bunch of required classes of course um, that had the same curricula across the different engineering disciplines but another one was like a tech ethics class where we had to study fail engineering failures over time and um, you know we studied the tacoma narrows galloping gertie we studied all the ways that tech can fail and he brought this thing called the order of the engineer have either of you heard of that is that the is that the thing that has to do with the ring that rubs off on the thing that you work on? It's um it's this thing where if you see anyone wearing like an a, a ring on their uh, the pinky finger of their working hand, it's an it's engineers that have sworn an oath to be mindful in their work that their work is um you know that they understand that with with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> that um, that technologists have special knowledge, and that uh, the people who use the product of their work don't have the same knowledge that they do, and that lives are at stake. And so, the Order of the Engineer was formed in Canada. the um, The ring was an iron ring, and the ring um, uh, the rings initially were made from iron from a bridge that had failed. So that you always saw it on your working hand. And so uh, it's a Canadian thing and was not very uh, prevalent in the United States. Just one or two universities have done it traditionally. And um, and Bob brought that to Cooper Union. And so I was sworn in to the order of the engineer 
um, when I graduated from Cabrini. And it's it's a cool tradition because in Canadian universities, it's like a really big deal. And so the night before people get sworn in, they do all these pranks because it's the last time that they're allowed to do like to act in any kind of unethical way because they're going to make their oath. And so it's kind of like, you know, cows up on roofs and things like that happen the night before they get sworn in. So it's oh. pretty fun. And so for me, working in the computer center was a, and getting to know Bob was a really big, uh, big deal for how I, uh, I became focused on how, or how I thought about software and how I thought about technology. And so for one, it was that I was installing Linux labs in, um, in Cooper union which I remember thinking, this free software thing is so cool. It's too bad it won't go anywhere. <laughs> Shows what I know. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, um, you know, and then also just being mindful about the fact that there are ethical implications to all of our technology. And so I think those were the the two major things that I took away from that experience at Cooper Union. And I think it really, despite the fact that I then went off to become, to go to law school and become a lawyer, I think that, uh, that those experiences were probably the most profound ones in setting the groundwork for me being um, passionate about software freedom. And then of course, later on, after I was already working in the field and thought that open source was really cool um, is when I found out that I had a heart condition and got a defibrillator and started being passionate about software freedom. So, so let's talk about that. You, um, I, I've known you as both a punk rock lawyer and also as a free software cyborg lawyer. And, uh, uh, I, I, I'm interested in hearing the transition from, uh, you know, just moving into, you know, like just being, uh, a plain lawyer or maybe even plain slash, uh, uh, you know, punk, uh, lawyer, uh, to, to getting the, uh, free software awareness that came with that other cyborg aspect. Yeah. So the punk rock lawyer, which is my domain name, I was originally, it was because I was really into punk rock music and it was funny because I was working as a corporate lawyer in London and doing like securities law, you know, like debt and equity transactions, mostly debt um, and working insane hours um, but then I would, and, and wearing suits a lot of the time. And then I would like, if I finished work at like 10, I would go see a punk show and I had the whole thing worked out where I had, um, at my desk in my drawer, I had my boots. Um, and I had, I would wear like a punk t-shirt under my button down shirt. And I always wore like a skirt suit so that with tights. And then I could just go to the pub across the street from the punk venue and I was felt like Superman because I would just go into the bathroom and I would like take off the button down shirt and you know, I would leave my coat, my blazer on my desk chair at the office. And then I would just put my hair in like little pigtails and put on a choker and my boots. <laughs> and I was like wearing almost all the same clothes I'd been wearing all day, but it was like a, an identity transformation and I was punk rock. And so originally punk rock lawyer was meant to be like a, a discussion of like, you know, thoughts about identity and how you reconcile these very different identities. Did anybody at the firm discover your secret identity? Well, you know, people are people. Like, people are very complex. And when you work with people, you get to know them better. And you really start to like people who are very different from yourselves. And it turns out that 
you know, over the years that I work with people, uh, I was not the only one who liked what I thought of as good music. <laughs> so, uh, so there was one other person at the firm who was actually in my practice who liked going to similar shows than me, and he would go with me. Um, and then uh, at the end of the, I think that most of the people who I work with didn't realize that I was doing that. Um, and there was actually one time where I walked by a partner in my law firm on the streets on the weekend and I was like really decked out and I, he just <laughs> didn't recognize me at all. So he just walked by me. <laughs> so, so we, we just went from one genre of fiction, which was the, uh, um, which is the superhero genre. And now moving into the science fiction genre, how does it move to the free software cyborg lawyer side of the story? Oh yeah. So once I'd been working, so, 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 uh, you know, I, I have this this heart condition, and um, and the whole the process of um, dealing with my heart condition um, caused me to be to completely change the way that I think about the technology that we rely on. And uh, for me, it was deeply personal. And so uh, I have this heart condition where I'm at a very high risk of suddenly dying. I like uh, literally have a big heart. It's like three times the size of a normal person's heart. Um, and I'm at a 2 to 3% chance per year compounding risk of dying. The medical term is sudden death. I kid you not. Um, and uh, so I need a defibrillator so that if I go into sudden death, it will shock me and everything will be fine. But in researching this defibrillator and having a technical background and also a legal background, I discovered that you uh, that these devices are are not particularly safe at all there's uh no real security on these devices the way that our, these devices are set up are just completely backwards the software is closed and proprietary so we can't review it but at the same time the um, there's no real security on these devices so um I was pretty horrified when I realized that I, I put off for a while getting my device, but I realized that I couldn't put it off because it was just too dangerous for me to live without it. So I got the device thinking that I would work on this in parallel. And that was a while ago. Um, and when I first got this device, I thought the fact that I couldn't see the software in my own body was so terrifying and so upsetting that it really drove me to advocate for software transparency. And it really made me passionate for that aspect of software freedom. But then over the years, as my life progressed and as um, as technology progressed, um, I had situations where I realized that it wasn't just about software transparency. So when I was pregnant a few years ago, um, my heart did what a lot of women's hearts do when I um, when they're pregnant. Uh, about 25% of all women get palpitations when they're pregnant. And uh, because I had a defibrillator, my defibrillator thought that my heart was in a dangerous rhythm and it shocked me multiple times to fix that. And the only way for me to deal with the situation was for me to take drugs to slow my heart rate down, not because I needed my heart rate slowed down for my heart condition, but solely to prevent unnecessary treatment for my medical device. And it was really tough because I had a hard time walking up a flight of stairs for the rest of the pregnancy. So you had a hard time running, going upstairs because you had to take medication to slow your heart only because the, the hardware would shock you otherwise? Yes, 
because otherwise there would be a risk that my heart would palpitate at such a speed that my defibrillator would think that my heart was at a dangerous rhythm and it would try to shock me. So the drugs were solely a hack to prevent unnecessary treatment. It was so messed up. And it made me realize that, you know, it's one of those things. Medical device manufacturers have no desire for pregnant women to get shocked. It is literally the last thing they want. Nobody wants pregnant ladies getting shocked (laughs) and the press nightmare and everything. But when you think about it, only about 40% of the people who get defibrillators are women to start with. And then I found out that only 15% of people who have defibrillators are under the age of 65. So the set of people who are pregnant and have defibrillators is tiny. And I, um, I went to a high-risk obstetrician in um, uh, Roosevelt Hospital, which is now Mount Sinai West up in the Upper West Side in New York City. And uh, I saw one of the heads of the practice. And this is a woman who is very senior in her career. And I was talking to her about something. And I said, oh, well, the next time you have a defibrillator patient, you might want to know. And she cut me off and she said, oh, I don't have defibrillator patients. I said, what do you mean? And she said, oh, you know, in all of my career, I've had one other defibrillator patient. She said, it happens, but it's just not very common. So, you know, like, I'll take your advice, but I don't anticipate needing it anytime soon. (laughs) And so it was really interesting because I realized that what was happening to me was not the use case that the manufacturer had anticipated. Through no ill will, they were just not thinking about my situation. And it made me realize as we're deploying a lot of technology and a lot of software across a very wide range of activities, what haven't the manufacturers anticipated? And I think that over time, we're going to see this come up more and more. And I think that I, I, the, whole, the whole idea terrifies me. And what terrifies me even more is that it took my, for myself, it took me personally having the experience of being shocked and wrapping my head around it and trying to understand how the device was behaving differently than I needed it to for me to understand how important it was it is to have control over the devices that we rely on so that we can fix things when they happen now being pregnant is a temporary condition but it's a perfect example of the way things can go wrong when uh, the software is put into you know when there are cases that are not anticipated in their original design that's huge. So help us understand how that transitions to working on conservancy. Yeah. So um, so right from the beginning of dealing with my defibrillator and, you know, I, I was at the, at the time I was a lawyer at the Software Freedom Law Center. Um, so uh, so I'd already thought that uh, open source was pretty cool. Um, but then I started to realize that software freedom was really necessary. And I started to engage in a much more direct way um, because for me, it's, it, it, it was such a it's been such an eye-opening experience and I realized that my experience is the kind of thing that will help people understand why having control over our critical technology is so important and so I needed to be more directly involved um, with the solutions and with the framework to support an alternative um, through software freedom and so I um, I've been less on the lawyer side and more on the um, uh, I was going to say activist, but more on the the acting side. So less in a service role and more in a driving role and more of an advocacy role, because I think that it's incredibly important that, uh, that we have that, um, uh, that we have, we have that, uh, that direction 
So I've been involved with the Software Freedom Conservancy um, actually since its founding in 2006, uh, but I didn't uh, join as an employee until I think it was 2014 when I became executive director when uh, Bradley uh, hired me to take his job. <laughs> so, so we've mentioned Conservancy a whole bunch of times, so – Maybe we can take a step back. So what exactly is Conservancy and what does Conservancy do? Thanks. Uh, yeah, so Software Freedom Conservancy, we're a, a U.S.-based charity. So for people who are a little nerdy about that, uh, we're a 501c3 charity. We're an umbrella organization. And so uh, one of the things that we do is fiscal sponsorship. So we have about uh, coming up on 50 free and open source software projects that are a part of us. We are their foundation. So um, projects that you've heard of like Oh, I don't know, Git, uh, Sambo, Inkscape, Selenium, uh, Etherpad, Racket. I think because I'm talking to you both, I'm thinking of things that I know you're interested in. Um, so uh, <laughs> we've got a, a load of these software projects that are uh, uh, they're like analogous to like a division in a corporation. So where they're like their legal form, if they need to sign any contracts or if they need to protect their trademarks or if they have problems with licensing or um, whatever it is that they, if they want to have a conference or send their um, send people to other conferences to, um, to meet with each other um, and to work on free and open source software, their problems are our problems. And those are all things that we do. So, uh, uh, so that's a big, huge chunk of what we do. Some of our member projects are more, um, uh, are kind of meta. So uh, Outreachy is another um, member project of Conservancy, which uh, Outreachy is a diversity initiative. Uh, maybe we could talk about that a little bit more. Uh, but uh, we also are, what we're probably most well known for is our uh, uh, GPL compliance work, even though it's a very small portion of the the work that we have that we do. And it's partly because we're just, we're tiny org. We're like, uh, we're just uh, four full-time people and one part-time person. And we just are working all the time. So uh, we just do the best that we can, but GPL enforcement is something that we, uh, we are perhaps most well known for. And we uh, uh, helped fund and also supported the lawsuit that Christoph Helwig brought against VMware, which is now in appeal. And so we're just, we're a fun organization because we're while we're a tiny staff, our staff is very high level and low level. Everyone who works at Conservancy is just super passionate about software freedom. Um, everybody has their own origin story of why they care deeply about software freedom. And uh, they're willing to do all of the high level strategy work, but also the very low level, crummy, crummy administrative work. And so we just do everything up and down and it's great. We can work on whatever it is that we think are the most important ethical issues around software freedom. And I think our niche is coming up with really pragmatic solutions that help and also being a real voice for community. And I think that's that sort of covers the overview of what Conservancy is. Great. So um, you mentioned that Conservancy is, you know, kind of a um, it, it's an organization that does a lot with uh, a you know, with without as many resources as it may appear, given the large amount of things that Conservancy covers. Uh, so I would be remiss of me, and I think we'll mention it again at the end. But I, I would, it would be remiss of me to to not point out at this moment that Conservancy is running a fundraiser uh, that we should all donate to. Um, but in order to get to, um, uh, before we get into the fundraiser itself, I'd like to actually talk about 
um, some of these things that Conservancy is funding in detail, um, especially because uh, fiscal sponsorship is a great one because it may appear, uh, especially if you join as a member project, you're like, well, I have my member dues, you know, uh, and uh, the member dues is, I think it's 10% of uh, income. Is that yeah, correct? that's right. 10% of the um, the money that our member projects take in go to help support the general funds. But, uh, but the, the, all of our member projects together have taken, I think, less than two full-time people working on uh, working at Conservancy, and it takes well more than four normal uh, employee hours worth of time to do the work for our member projects. So we have to go out and fundraise to help supplement that. Right, right. So, um, so as you said, not all it, it's not enough income on its own. But I, I'd like to get a sense, you know, if I'm joining. As a member project, uh, I, what does fiscal so- sponsorship mean? What does it mean to be under Conservancy's umbrella, right? So if it, uh, you mentioned, so there's already a hint in terms of fiscal sponsorship of accounting uh, um, and, and holding money. Why might I want a separate organization to hold it, right? Like, what if you know, I could just have all the money transferred to me, the maintainer's bank account, and then I could just distribute that out manually, right? Well, that sounds perfectly <laughs> you fine. You could do that, but you might have problems if you do that. So, for one, you'd have to pay personal taxes on all the money that came in, and secondly, if you paid other people, you'd have to deal with the tax implications of that too. Um, but Perhaps even more importantly is that there's a trust aspect to it, which is that you might be a trusted member of the community today, but it's hard to predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Using a fiscal sponsor or an organization like Conservancy, or there are others in the field too, um, there are quite a few really good organizations that are all a little bit different. Um, But using one of us means that there's assurance that whatever money comes in is going to be handled properly. It won't be, um, you know, misused in any way, whether accidentally or intentionally. And we've had both happen in our field where folks have, um, have absconded with money in a not great way. But more often, we just have people who get busy with something else, or their interests change. And then it's hard to get a hold of them. And then the money or whatever other assets are, are there, basically just uh, get tied up and it's very difficult to figure out how to get access to them. If you're a part of Conservancy or another charitable fiscal sponsor, then there's a tax de- tax deduction in the U.S. If um, uh, to the extent that it, uh, it works for your, your um, uh, tax situation. So like there are quite a few advantages to, um, to being with Conservancy. Plus also if you're ever applying for grants or um, there are a whole, a whole host of other reasons why coming with, into something like Conservancy is valuable. The other thing is you don't know what problems are uh, coming up down like, the road and we have a lot of synergy. Oh, I said synergy, but yeah, we have a lot of synergy <laughs> amongst our member projects because they often have similar kinds of problems. And so we can tackle them um, for, for everybody at the same time. And we like do things like negotiate, like, you know, donated services from companies and um, things like that. You know, like uh, like so, credits from Gandhi for domain names, and uh, uh, you know, we've gotten server credits and things like that, and it benefits all of our member projects. So, if I'm putting my money into Conservancy, and I, I, I don't imagine everybody does this, but I maybe maybe I'd. Um, so it's actually impressive to me that in many ways that, you know, Conservancy is actually doing, you know, running the books, but I may also want to be able to see that myself. Is there a way for that to become transparent to me as a 
maintainer of the project as a community steward of my own project. Oh my gosh, this is one of the things I'm most proud of about Conservancy. So uh, we keep the books and records for our member projects, but we keep them um, in a subversion repository, uh, despite the fact that uh, subversion is not a member project of Conservancy, but Git and Mercurial and Darks all are. Um, but we still, we use, Subversion is really good for this kind of thing. Um, so, uh, so we keep our books and records in Subversion and then each member project has access to their own repository. And so they can generate their own reports on their own, um, uh, their own books and records and they can, uh, scrutinize particular transactions if they want. We've been working really hard to try to work on an accounting system that is, uh, very accountable, that's very transparent and that also uh, generates the right kind of report. Uh, reports that we want to. It's very, very difficult to keep good books and records for so many restricted accounts. I mean, we've got, you know, almost 50 member projects. And so we have to keep books and records for all of them. And that's, uh, that's, that's pretty tough. So, um, so we're really proud of it. We actually recently went to our auditors. I, I personally went to our auditors to hand them our books and records for the year. Um, now that we're at the end of the year and we, we have a deadline next month to file our annual report with the IRS. And so I brought the, um, the USB drive over to them with our books and the, our, the accountant who is the main contact was working with a new junior person and he was like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta look at these books and records. And he like called over the junior guy and asked him to put the drive in to take a look at it. And the junior guy was blown away. He was like, Oh my gosh, everything's here. Cause we have like links in our main ledger to our receipts <laughs> and to our everything is like, cause it's, it's accounting as designed by nerds and it is awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar. You're using the the Ledger program by John Weekly, right? We are. Currently. We're transitioning, uh, I believe, to Bean Count now. Okay, cool, cool. Which is also similar in plain text accounting, mm-hmm. you see. Uh, cool. So the uh, um, I, that so there there may be other things. Uh, so if I'm a member project, you mentioned some other things that that there may be details like what what is it you you hinted at like trademarks and maybe licensing things. Could you could you expand on that? Uh, yeah, so we do. I mean, just whenever our member projects have problems, there are problems. So, um, so I'm a lawyer, but I usually am acting as executive director. But we have a lawyer on retainer, um, and there are often problems where um, where folks have all manner of legal questions. The most common thing is uh, is related to trademark. So we file for the trademarks of our member projects and we defend them. Um, and that that you'd be surprised how often that comes up and how often. Uh, free software projects are, are are under threat trademark wise, and we sometimes it's uh, you know we we help Git for example um, enter into agreements with the um, the companies that have used the name Git following them, and then um, and then we've made sure that there's a limit to how many Git names there are out there because it can be very confusing um, uh, the some of the names that folks have come up with, and so you can see. Um, and I'll t- I know that you all are awesome and have great show notes. So I'll try to get you a link to um, to the email that uh, we helped get right, where they explained how they enforce their trademark and why. And so you can see, get a flavor of the kind of thing that we do. Um, we just work with projects to design like legal solutions together that really work. And we always have great counsel. We've got like uh, quite a few, uh, we've got a few lawyers that we pay and a few lawyers that are just volunteers. And it's just uh, a really great legal staff that helps us. So um, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. So that's a great transition. So you've talked about what Conservancy does in terms of helping organizations take money in. And you mentioned earlier GPL enforcement. So 
how exactly does the license enforcement work? Uh, in a, let's let's break that down a little bit. So, if someone is violating a software license, you're going to come in, I guess, representing that organization. So, does that mean that you're now the copyright holder, or how? Does so, that there are two different work? ways that we wind up doing GPL enforcement. One is uh, is as like an enforcement agent and one is as a copyright holder. So it sort of depends how it works. So we have our member projects that want to enforce their, so not, our member projects, we don't, we're, we as an organization are license agnostic. So we have projects that are, that have a lot of, you know, that have lax permissive licensing and we have projects that are strong copy left and we have everything in the middle. Um, so uh, we don't require that our projects would be copyleft. Quite the contrary, we just support whatever it is that they decide to do. But for our projects that are copylefted, those that choose to enforce their uh, their copyrights, we help them do so. And that either takes the form of them uh, of them just asking us to help them as an enforcement agent, um, or it uh, it may, or it comes in the form of them assigning their copyrights to us, and we haven't pushed either way. People tend to have really strong feelings about what they would prefer, and so we just support whatever it is that folks want. What we're probably most well known for is enforcing the G- the GPL um, on behalf of Linux kernel developers who have asked us to do so, and we have a mix there too. Some have, uh, you know, we've had we've had copyrights assigned to us, and we also have. Uh, uh, just act as a as a as an assistant to um, to copyright holders. So it kind of runs the gamut. So let's talk about that. Uh, I want to talk about the particular case that you mentioned. But before we do that, in most cases, my understanding is that it doesn't have to go to court like it has in the GPL case. But maybe you can. Yeah, talk about I mean, that. so uh, so we try really hard to do our enforcement in a, a principled and ethical way. So um, we're a charity and we are focused on supporting software freedom for um, for the public good, but we recognize that the only way that software freedom will succeed in the long run is if um, if companies are involved with free and open source software and there's soft there's free software in um, in the devices that we're relying on. So um, so we when we enforce our attitude is that someone who is violating the license today is tomorrow's contributor. And so we wanted to set the ground rules so that when we contact people, they know what they can expect from us. And, um, and so we've, um, we've put down these uh, principles for community-oriented GPL enforcement up, and there are things like um, compliance is our primary goal, not money. And that we're not shaking people down for uh, for for money based on um, silly violations. We uh, we also had the idea um, uh, we also had the idea that um, that what we would do is we would uh, we would even though most of the enforcement we do not all of it but most of it is on GPLv2 that we allow. Uh, companies to have a little bit better. We treat them as if they had GPLv3 termination provisions, which means that uh, that there's a cure period. So if you're in a violation under GPLv2, you automatically lose your rights, and the only way you have a right to distribute is if your rights are restored. Whereas under GPLv3, there's a period of time where if you fix that problem, then you automatically are able to distribute again. I don't know. Is this too in the weeds? No, I, th- I think it's good. Uh, it, it basically, I mean, I, I think we want to stop uh, a little bit and, and focus, I guess, on the specific, right? So 
the the case that everyone who is in the know talks about in here is is VMware. So maybe you yeah, can talk totally. a little I'll bit about that. Yeah, totally. I'll wrap up the principles to say that I'm really excited that uh, it looks like uh, bits of the principles are being adopted. They wholesale were endorsed by some other entities like GPLviolations.org, but uh, Red Hat has started doing this thing called the um, the uh, GPL Cooperation Commitment, and um, and that's been adopted, and that basically. Um, adopts just that termination provision, but I really hope that people take a look at the principles overall and embrace them more fully as a litigation is a last resort. And so that's sort of the way, the way that we do it, it sometimes takes a long time, um, but then we're confident that we're not increasing the risk for companies to adopt free and open source software. It's a, it's a really um, difficult line to walk and we do the best that we can. So, um, so yeah, so VMware has been our most, I think, prominent case um, and it's been going on now for years. Uh, Christoph Helwig, we, I think Conservancy uh, was working on that for a few years already before uh, Christoph filed his lawsuit against VMware. Um, Christoph Helwig is a part of our coalition, but he filed the, the suit um, directly um, in Germany. And, um, and we uh, funded the suit and also um, provide support where we can. Um, and uh, and now the the case is on appeal. There was recently a hearing, and so I think there'll be more news about that in the coming year. All right. So let's we want to keep talking about all the cool things you're doing in conservancy, but I want to kind of follow up to something you had said earlier about contracting. And uh, I don't remember if you explicitly mentioned this, but the idea that that conservancy can pay for development. Or it can be a, a means by which developers oh, yeah. can get paid. I, you know, and you I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say, like, I'm going to break the wall a little bit to say that um, Chris and Serge are so cool. We've recorded this. This is like the third time we've tried to record this podcast because uh, we had audio difficulties the first two times. And they're just amazing. And so... Uh, so this is sort of referencing back to we we did a, a take that wasn't usable and we were talking about this and I just like wanted to take this moment to just say that uh, I'm so excited that they're doing this podcast and um, and they're you're just both really so nice so thank you so much. Well, we're excited to be doing this podcast with you, especially because of all the critical things that Conservancy is doing. So yeah, I'm I'm also interested in the way that Conservancy uh does uh the you know being being able to be paid for you know mm-hmm. doing things as contracting um and actually you've got there's a number of ways in which uh that that ties in in a certain sense uh actually there's another contracting uh, thing that you've had recently, which is this contract patch That's right. initiative. Um, so we have, uh, so, so one of the things that we do for our member projects is that we will hire developers or other contributors to free and open source software. And so, um, we've, we have, uh, quite a few member projects that choose to do that. Um, some really successfully, Godot is a really good example of that. Um, they're, uh, they have a few really amazing developers that are contracting to help make Godot better. And it's just really transforming the, they're, they're excellent. Um, and we've, we have quite a few member projects that are in that category uh, where we're paying developers to, um, uh, uh, to work on stuff. So, uh, so, and I think uh, including the outreach interns, it's always like quite a lot of people that we pay per year. It's often over a hundred. Um, so, uh, so we're there. Um, 
so yeah, so that's one of the things that we do. And then um, the uh, the other thing that we that Chris is referring to is that we have been starting to work on this thing where we uh, we realize that there's um, an inequity that often happens when, um, in the relationship between free software contributors and uh, the companies that are very in, involved in this space and where a lot of free and open source software projects had started out as hobbyist projects back in the day. Um, companies uh, before companies had been very involved in free and open source software, the individuals that were involved had a tremendous amount of power about the fate of the project. But over time, what has happened is that companies have gotten involved, which is great. But in order to help companies participate more, we've given up so very much um, to them and ceded a lot of control in free and open source software. And one of the things that we, um, uh, one of the things that uh, that we we've seen is that the move away from copyleft towards uh, lax permissive software means that um, that there's there's even less of less power from on behalf of the community. And one of the things that kind of balances this is having a distributed copyright holding. So if you have a project and the copyrights are not a- aggregated with a company, but instead are held by a lot of people, it becomes a lot harder for companies to shift away, to pivot away to other licensing, which we're seeing a lot in a lot of different areas right now. We're seeing new licenses. Um, we're seeing non-free licenses come out of companies who had aggregated copyrights um, and uh, under the, the guise of, or the name of being a good steward. But now in order to make sure that they have a, um, a, a a business model that is interesting to their VC investors, or um, or that they feel like they can maximize their maximize their profit in in a, a particular way, they're pivoting away from free licensing. And if we don't allow companies to aggregate our copyrights, if we hold them um, more distributedly, then it means that we have a lot more control over making sure that the projects stay free and also that they are in a direction that we want. And so one of the things that we've done is to help empower developers to negotiate their employment agreements a little bit better. So for example, if you're hired to work on, uh, you know, work at a job and they tell you you're going to work only on free and open source software, then, you know, then why not put that in agreement? If you're working on copyleft software in particular, why not ask to hold the copyrights to the software that you're contributing to? Um, it's just, um, I think a lot of people don't realize that they can negotiate their employment agreement, but in fact, quite often you can. And so um, I actually taught a continuing legal education class uh, last year, it was like a year and a half ago, to a whole room of lawyers. And I asked how many of them had been asked to modify their company, one of their clients, a company's um, employment agreement to accommodate requests that developers had made either to, uh, to just to accommodate something that supported software freedom. And two thirds of them had raised their hands. So this is something that is very, very doable. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're bringing together standard contract language so that um, so that folks can um, can have the tools to ask, um, you know, let's let's patch the contract in this way or that way. So we call it the initiative contract patch. And we started out by publishing a couple of blog posts that are basically like, yes, you can negotiate your employment agreement and, um, and here are all the things that you can think about. And we're still working on it. We're really low on resources, but this is one of the things that I think is pretty exciting that we're doing. And, and it can be, I mean, I think so in a certain sense, actually talking about these types of things can make a big difference as well, right? So actually I am a person who in my last employer uh, negotiation, I actually 
asked for such a, a provision. And I probably wouldn't have done it if it weren't for the contract patch initiative, because uh, to be honest, I'm kind of a shy and feel like I'm imposing all the time person. And it can feel like, oh, I don't really want to be that person, like capital T, capital mm-hmm. T, that person type thing. So it feels to me like hearing that kind of thing, like, no, it's okay, can actually kind of give permission and space to, be yeah, able to do sure. those types and of like, things. You know, studies show that when you negotiate your employment, your employment agreement, that your employer actually respects you more. Now, there are some caveats to this, which is the studies also show that people are not uh, not treated the same way when they ask for the same things. So, for example, uh, women and minorities uh, studies show that when they ask aggressively for things that might not be interpreted exactly the same way. But across the board, um, it, it pretty much never hurts to ask. And there are nice ways to ask to modify your contract. There's, you know, you can ask in a very non-threatening way. There are times when you, well, first of all, you should always negotiate for money. You should always ask for more money than they've offered you because normally they have a range that they're expecting to um, pay you and they offer you the lowest part of that range. And they are expecting when they offer you the range that you will ask for more and that they'll wind up in the like a little bit higher than what they offered you. So by not asking to negotiate your contract at all, you're just leaving money on the table. And it's similar with uh, these contract provisions is that sometimes if you ask for a lot of things, they'll just give you these contract provisions because it's not money or it's not a you know a title they can give you or something. And so it's like kind of a a balancing act. And so it you always should ask. It never hurts to ask. And you can say things like, uh, you know, I I I I've been told that I really should ask. Um, I I usually say um, uh, in these situations, like if I'm negotiating something, like a, for example, um, when I'm asked I'm asked to speak a lot, and um, and I read a study that said that women don't ask for honorariums. So I always just say, just I'm just very straightforward. I say, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to come speak at your event because I think it's important. But um, I am aware that women don't ask for honorariums and men do. So if you have an honorarium, I would like to request it. And I would like to request the biggest budget that you have for that honorarium. (laughs) And do you know, one time, Conservancy got a $10,000 honorarium because of that. Yeah, I didn't even think there was going to be anyone. But you know, it's the same thing with employment contracts. You just may as well, you you, you may as well ask. Well, that that ties in uh, to a certain extent with you. So you're talking about uh, um, the ways in which people are perceived and also, you know, taking an active effort to be able to, uh, um, especially with an awareness of the social context um, in which these kind of differences do exist in our society, that, that, that feels like it ties in directly to me with the, the next piece that we wanted to talk to you about, which is outreachy. Um, so could, I'm, I, Probably a lot of our listeners know what Outreachy is, but I'd I'd love to hear you describe it in your own uh, words. Outreachy is a diversity initiative. It's paid remote internships for folks that are either underrepresented or experience systemic bias. Um, And we have about uh, usually around 90 interns per year, and they're with a variety of different free and open source software projects um, from the Linux kernel to uh, Wikimedia to um, Gnome and Debian, uh, OpenStack. The, there's a, a, a ton of projects that participate and the, uh, the it, it follows Summer of Code. It's inspired by Summer of Code uh, because the project, um, the program originally um, started out at, uh, at Gnome 
and uh, and GNOME participated in Google Summer of Code. And there was one summer where they had 181 applicants for GNOME and only and, and no women were part of that. And so it was an effort to um, to try to fix some of the problems that we have. And the program as it's running now was started in 2009. Um, and just before I came in as executive director at um, at GNOME, and uh, and when I came in, we expanded the program to include other free and open source software projects. Actually, uh, I wasn't. I was. I was as a. Vo- I was a volunteer at Conservancy at the time. So Conservancy was the first uh, entity that joined GNOME in um, in Outreachy as a or was Outreach program for women at the time. But in Outreachy as a as an experiment. So I'm actually really proud of that. Now um, I get to work at Conservancy, and then um, and then ultimately because the program wasn't just for GNOME. Uh, uh, Gnome and uh, Conservancy agreed that uh, that Conservancy was a better fiscal home for Outreachy. So now Outreachy is within Conservancy too. So um, so yeah. So uh, it's pretty exciting program. More than 500 people have come through the program already, and we haven't like we don't formally collect metrics, but uh, but anecdotally we do, and our non-metric metrics are awesome. So like uh, about 100 people who have come through the program have now given uh, full length talks at tech conferences, which is pretty cool. A ton of people found employment after um, in something that's connected to free and open source software. Um, we have people in amazing leadership positions. So uh, one of the graduates formed, founded the Nairobi Dev- Developer School and um, the uh, Women in Free Software, uh, Women in Free Software India and uh, uh, uh Chris is familiar with there's a, a, a Chicago hacking group that uh, that one of the graduates was involved in starting. Um, and so like graduates are on the boards of organizations and um, and are, are really shaping the leadership of those projects. And so I'm pretty, pretty proud to be involved with Outreachy. That's great. I, you know, I actually remember when the original GNOME, uh, uh, some, uh, women's Summer of Code. I, I don't remember what the original was name the was, but I remember program. when it came out. At, right, yeah. And I remember seeing the post where they said, you know, here there were all these submissions and they were only men. And then we explicitly asked and there were more women that submitted than there were in the original out, out, uh, 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 the, fir- the first not asking for women uh, summer of code round is that correct i seem to remember it being a higher number than the original um, thing even yeah had. i mean it turns out that uh that expressly inviting certain groups to um to participate is huge so i uh, there have been quite a few graduates of outreach over the years and i just call it outreach even though it was originally women's outreach program then it was outreach program for women um and now it's outreach uh you know it, i've being in, involved it, it's been a, an evolution over time so uh, so but early on especially there were uh, people were very explicit that they were too intimidated to apply to summer of code and because the program expressly invited women they felt like they could do it and quite a number of people came through Outreachy, and then did uh, Google Summer of Code. And what's cool is that I think that we helped um, Google Summer of Code a little bit because some of our applicants came from, you know, went from Outreachy to Summer of Code. Uh, plus, also, you know, some of our graduates become mentors. Actually, one of my cool, one of the cool stories is that there was a um, more than one participant now has not only become just a mentor, but their mentee has become a mentor. So we have former participants who are now grand mentors. 
Awesome. Awesome. And uh, so I just wanted to clarify, uh, one of the changes I think that happened in the move from outreach program for women to outreachy is that is it's it's not just for um uh for women specifically there are some other That's groups right. that it's it covers for as well that is that are correct? underrepresented and also who have experienced systemic bias and we expressly invite uh women and non-binary people and also uh we expressly invite racial uh, along the lines of uh, racial diversity so um we expressly invite people who um who are based in the United States and who are um, are in groups that are underrepresented in U.S. tech, and we explicitly list those so that people can recognize um, if they fit in it, and then um, and then they can apply to our program. Great. Um, so I, I I actually, in a certain sense, it, it kind of feels like you're kind of so full circle back towards the the lab. I know it's so funny, and you know what's interesting ways. is that despite the fact that it happened to me where I got a real opportunity because I I was I wasn't asking for any diversity initiative when I went into that um, the heads the head of the computer center's office I really wasn't, and I all I was asking for was that they sort of do a better job at influencing the atmosphere to be less icky. That was what I really wanted. I wasn't asking for anything more than that. And I was a little surprised that it resulted in that job. And I tell you, I was a little uncomfortable with it. And I was very adamantly against diversity initiatives when I was in college and uh, and right after that for a while. Um, I thought that if I talked about how bad it was for women in tech, that I that I, we would draw attention to the problem and that um, and that it wouldn't help anybody. And that the only way that we were going to fix the problem was that if the women who were already in tech were so awesome that no one would ever question whether women belong there again. But of course, what happened was over that time, I saw that the stats on women in tech actually got worse and worse in the 80s, uh, which was before my time. But in the 80s, about a third of the women in um, computer science degrees were women. And then um, and then quite recently, it's been more like 18 percent. And so it's just been generally dropping. And then the stats with uh, free and open source software are even worse. About 25 percent of all software developers are women across proprietary software and free software just across the board. But with uh, with free and open source software, it's anywhere from like one to four percent. The very best study, the most represented survey I've ever seen was 11 percent. So we're doing like way worse than the rest of tech. So yeah, so it's really funny that it's kind of, um, it's a like a complete circle around to where I started, except that the lessons that I've taken from that experience at Cooper Union are different than the ones that I had at the time, because I, it's funny how you have to live, you have to live a lot of this discrimination firsthand. You have to have all these bad experiences. The, the jerk who licked my neck at OSCON, the, you know, the guy who followed me to my hotel room, like the many people who assumed that I was a spouse or significant other and could not have been a speaker um, the many people who assumed that I was a marketer and not involved in that, that I had no idea, despite the fact that I was at a free software conference, that I had any idea what free software was. The fact that when I hang out with other executive directors of orgs that are men and a technical issue comes up, they explain the issue to me, even though 
the similar person next to me who's the executive director of another like free and open source software entity. Um, you know, this has happened to me before, but there's one in particular who had been a marketer. Like he had no tech background. And, you know, like, you know, once upon a time I was programming in C and Fortran and Lisp. And, you know, like the presumption that I am not technical. And I tell you, over the years, I just realized if I were not already um, established, if I didn't have my heart condition, I was so passionate about software freedom, I would just have given up. It's so much work. It's like always so much work to prove yourself. There's studies that show that this um, this happens pretty uniformly. Um, there was a study that um, showed that if you uh, if you showed patches, if, if you had people review uh, submitted patches, um, they and you identified a gender with the submission that folks, the reviewers considered the submissions by women to be inferior to those of men. But if you anonymize them, actually, then the submissions by women were considered of higher quality. And so it's just constantly having to work to be to work that much harder, to be that much better, to be considered as good as a mediocre man. So. So let's let's talk about that a little bit in terms of the benefits. So let's okay before we do that. It's obvious from what you've said, from what many of others have said, that women are vastly underrepresented in free software. The I guess the the question that keeps coming up in these these male dominated circles is well, why is that important? Why do we need diversity why do we need women why do we need people of color in free software and with your work in outreach yeah well there are how a do number you answer of answers that? to that i mean i like to refer to i like to stick to statistics as much as i can and to demonstrate um like that study that i just told you about but we need diverse perspectives in our technology or we're not going to succeed one example of this that i like to talk about is there are actually multiple soap dispensers on them that have been brought to market that work great for white hands. But if someone with dark hands tries to use the soap dispenser, it just doesn't work. And there are hilarious videos where people put their hands under the soap dispenser and nothing happens, but then they take a paper towel and it, a white paper towel and it works. And it's totally obvious that whoever designed those soap dispensers you know, of course, they wanted anyone who was approaching the soap dispenser to get soap out of their dispenser. That was the whole point of designing a soap dispenser. But uh, but they clearly had no darker hands on their team or they would have recognized right away that their soap dispenser didn't work for darker hands. And this is exactly the an example of the kinds of things right. that will happen to our technology if we don't have diverse people working, if we don't have a diverse set of people working on our software. We don't even like my defibrillator situation, right? The set of people who are pregnant with fibrillators is tiny, like, but having any women at all on the team would possibly change the way that uh, folks would, uh, would design their products, even from the get go. And there are quite, there's like a, a laundry list of anecdotes that have come out of industry of products that have, um, you know, have been not, not very easy for women to use simply because there were obviously no women involved in their team. So, you know, I think it's really important if we want free and open source software to be successful, we have to have a diverse set of people working on that software. Well, I, I think you're touching on an important issue, which is the question of whether or not free software is meaningful because it gives us user freedom, meaning the people who wrote it or whether it, or whether we're trying to make everyone free. So in your example, you know, things that help women 
wouldn't necessarily help me directly, right? Because I'm, I'm a cis man. So what I'm really asking is, uh, 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 this is a loaded question, right? So how does more users of more types help us well, as a movement? That's a very good question. And I think that this is sort of uh, really cuts to the heart of the different theories around why software freedom is important. Um, I believe very strongly that software freedom is about user freedom. Um, I've been talking a lot to Molly DeBlanc about this recently, um, and she and I gave a couple of talks together, uh, one at Hope and one at DevConf about um, software freedom and user freedom. Um, I think that, uh, that, you know, I became passionate about software freedom because of my defibrillator. That's one hell of a printer story. Um, you know, I think Stallman probably had his printer story and he took away the frustration that he was unable to fix his own printer. It is, that is about user freedom, even though it's freedom to personally develop your software. For me, um, when you start talking about medical devices, yes, I am technical, but what I really want is the ability to hire whatever medical professionals that I want to, to make sure that my medical devices are right for me. And so for me, the whole point of software freedom has to be a societal one. There has to be something fundamental about user freedom. And the way that we're building all this critical technology right now, it also has something to do with, do we even understand the technology we're using? Can we consent to it? And if we have no control, then what does that mean for our ultimate destiny? What are we going to be able to do when things go wrong? That is the main question. And if we're stuck with particular companies, if we're locked in, we're going to be totally screwed. There's this thing called the honeymoon effect where um, uh, researchers have shown that while the number of bugs in a software project goes down over time, the number of vulnerabilities upon a product launch is flat. And there's like this honeymoon period where it takes time to, um, you know, it takes time for there to be uh, vulnerabilities that are known about, but once one happens, it increases almost exponentially. And the length of that honeymoon period is completely undefined. And it's different from project to project. They looked at free software, but they also looked at, um, at proprietary systems as well. And what that tells me is that we don't have to worry about the security of the devices today or right at product launch when the relationships are good, when the developers who created the products are in the companies. We need to worry about it down the road, whether it's in six months or 10 years. My defibrillator is theoretically going to last 17 years. The, the rep told me that that was very possible. What will things be like in 17 years? Will the company still be in business? If they are in business, will they have any relationships with the vendors that sold them their source code? So these are things that we really have to think about. And having complete and corresponding source code along with the scripts to control installation to borrow a phrase from the GPL is the most critical thing. That makes a lot of sense. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the podcast, or I guess in your case, the oddcast that inspired this one, which is free as in freedom. Can you talk a little about the origin of that podcast, where it is now? Uh, talk a little bit about the differences. I guess the biggest difference in my mind between what you guys did and what we're doing is that this is a more casual conversation. I think uh, free as in freedom was a more policy oriented. And from that end, I don't want to say technical in the, in the technology sense, but technical in that you guys <laughs> dive deep into the woods of a lot of these issues, which is great. I mean, it's, it's an amazing resource. Yeah, you're one so of the three listeners, I think. talk a little about Free as in Freedom. Um, 
which is a joke. We have a badge of pride because someone once told us that we, uh, uh, someone once recognized my voice and said, oh, you're one of the three. Oh, you have, oh, you're, you're, I thought I recognized you. You're one of the, the, the voices of that. Uh, you're one of the people who hosts that, uh, that oddcast that three people listen to. And so, uh, and so we told that story on our oddcast and then, uh, it became a badge of pride and people started saying, I'm one of the three. And it was really fun. So we even got a, uh, where, where, uh, somebody wrote me and said, I'm one of the three listeners that I know in Sri Lanka. So, <laughs> super fun. Um, yeah. So, uh, Freeze and Freedom has been really fun. We've been on hiatus, but we uh, we promised to come back in 2018. And while it is getting very close to the end of 2018, uh, we are committed to keeping our promise. So um, I think we'll be coming back on that soon. All right. Well, I think your faithful listeners uh, will be waiting for that. So is there anything else before we wrap up that I you want to touch on that we great. haven't? Or Chris? Actually, what? Chris, is there anything you want to bring up? Well, well, okay. I'm interested in general shout outs in case you have any general shout outs, but then I want to get back to the, uh, I want to say a little bit more about the fundraiser. Do you, so before we get to saying a few more words about the fundraiser, uh, Karen, do you have any shout outs that you want the audience to hear? Um, I'm going to uh, shout out to, to this both episode? of you because you're awesome. Um, uh, I mean, I think, um, I don't know. I'm really, I haven't prepared any shout outs, but, uh, there are so many awesome people and organizations working in free and open source software. Um, that, uh, that I, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little flummoxed and, um, and trust that you will be interviewing many of those important people, um, over the, the, the course of your, uh, your show as it develops. <laughs> Great. Um, yes, we definitely hope to interview more people, including more people from Conservancy. Uh, that's definitely our hope. Um, but let, let's get back to the, the fundraiser. I want to wrap up on that because, uh, um, I, where it's no it's no coincidence that we pulled you on now because we we wanted to although we're very excited to have well i in some ways i can't believe we have <laughs> free as in freedom co-host karen as our first guest on this podcast uh like that's an amazing uh thing for me personally being the huge free as in freedom fan that i am but i but we did want to pull you on here to talk about um the the fundraiser and so i just wanted to say to me, it feels like everything that you've been talking about does kind of pull to mind the image of, you know, Conservancy's little tree logo, the idea of Conservancy really being a Conservancy, really being a uh, a steward of the commons, because it feels to me like, you know, like a garden uh, free software needs tending hands. Otherwise, else you know we can't really grow. And I, I, and to me, that feels like why it's really important to donate to Conservancy at this time, and why I will be. So I'm, I'm curious if you have any comments about that or about um, the state of the fundraiser, and uh, uh, or any wrap up words that you want to say before people hopefully join Serge and I in putting their donations I'm totally to, gonna be honest uh, to good with purpose you and say i'm a little nervous because it's the biggest match we've ever tried to do the last few years uh, we've been super lucky and private internet access has uh has given us fifty thousand dollars as a match donation and um and then we have an individual who has topped that off with twenty five thousand dollars and so we've done seventy five thousand dollars and we've been able to get that every year and i think it gets people excited and 
Uh, it always makes me a little nervous because uh, having a donation that you don't know if you're going to get if people don't step up is stressful. But um, but it's cool, and I think people understand that their donation is that much more impactful when um, when it's matched like that, and that's really cool. But this year, uh, Molly DeBlanc, who I mentioned earlier, she got a group of people together to. Uh, to increase the amount by yet another $15,000. And so these are not super rich individuals. These are just people who care about software freedom and they care about conservancy and they, uh, they like what we're doing. And so they've been able to personally put their, you know, what, what they can afford in and, and step up and say that they want to invite people to, um, to donate and that they will personally match whatever small amount they can. And so, it's been really cool and exciting, but at the same time, it's a much bigger amount than we've ever done before. And so please, 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 if you're listening, please think about uh, donating. Uh, we Once we uh, we realized that standing up for the GPL and doing the VMware lawsuit and um, and doing all the other work that we do in the community interest and prioritizing that and not letting companies influence us, we saw a diminishment in corporate funding that we had. And so we had to pivot to an individual donor model. And what's so awesome about that is that everything we do, we think about, will that encourage people to give us $120 or more per year? Like, will it want someone, will it inspire someone to give us $10 a month? And that keeps our motivations perfectly aligned with where they should be. And I really love that. So things like how our work on the DMCA exemptions for um, smart TVs, and then personally, I did the um, medical devices stuff too, all that stuff, everything we do, we're looking for maximizing the impact of for software freedom in the community. We're friendly with companies, and we do have many companies that sponsor us, but um, but it's uh, we our lifeblood are our individuals, and it and it, it has to stay that way for us to be a successful organization. Well, great. I I think that. So we covered a lot of things that Conservancy does in this episode, and we didn't even go through all of the many projects that Conservancy covers. So I am going to make a bold assertion here, which is that uh, you cannot get a better bang for your buck than donating to Conservancy as in terms of advancing user freedom. So I'm going to donate uh, uh, tonight after I get off this episode. Serge, I believe you're donating as well, correct? Yeah, I am a member of Conservancy. Great. So we are excited to donate. And, and we if you, love, all this, our... if you love this podcast, you will be a member as well. Yes. You, it, it's, uh, um, so we, Karen, we are so thrilled to have you on as our first guest. And grateful. We're grateful. And, to have you and on. grateful. Uh, and, uh, you know, both as, you know, the, the, uh, for all the work you do and also for the incredible person you are. And, I'm really uh, grateful for all thank of you your for joining work. us here. And I'm thrilled to have been Lounge. the first guest. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. And we hope to hear you in the future. Thanks for coming and joining us. And we will talk to you guys next time. Take care. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joss, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.